Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask right here at sfm.scot. Hi, I'm John Colan. This time I'll be talking to former Member of Parliament and broadcaster George Galloway. We'll be hearing George's view on football governance, the influence of TV and the duty of care that clubs have to players in respect of their health and well-being as well as the potential impacts of a Brexit on Scottish football. Referees have been in the spotlight again this week with the penalties awarded to Celtic uh, against Motherwell in the League Cup final and then in the first of two back-to-back league matches, the subject of an inordinate amount of column inches and radio and TV bandwidth. We'll also be looking at the persistent rumours surrounding Aberdeen manager Derek McInnes possibly going to Rangers amidst a very sensitive time for both of those clubs. And the SPFL have again been covering themselves in glory after forcing a travel-weary Inverness side to play a game against Queen of the South at Dumfries and more on that later. First though, a quick rundown on the weekend action. Celtic had a comfortable 5-1 win against Motherwell at Celtic Park on Saturday in the last leg of their three-in-a-row marathon, which saw the Parkhead side retain the League Cup and bag four out of the six points in the league as well. Worryingly for the rest, three of Celtic's fringe players grabbed the opportunity to impress as some of the first-choice guys were out through injury. Odson Edwards stood in for the injured Dembele and arrested Griffiths and he got a hat-trick. Johnny Hayes took advantage of Pat Roberts' injury to put in his best performance thus far for Celtic and the fourth-choice centre-back Christopher Ayer ran Edward a very close second as man of the match. Motherwell will reflect in their week's work, I think, with some positivity. In all three games they competed well, they often gave as good as they got and they've got very much to be positive about. The penalty situation has been done to death in the blog and elsewhere, but despite the lingering sense of injustice in well ranks, there can be little doubt that they are the most improved side in the Premiership this term. Aberdeen and Rangers also had a league doubleheader, which saw Rangers take 6 out of 6 points. The match on Sunday at Pataudry saw a rather meek Dons go down 2-1 to a 10-man Rangers. Pretty much the same script as what happened in the midweek at Ibrox, where Rangers had won 3-0. Anyhow, that series of results takes Rangers into second place in goal difference over Aberdeen and one point ahead of Hibs, who beat Partick Thistle by a goal to nil at Firhill and Hibs, of course, are in fourth. Motherwell are still in fifth place despite that Celtic Bart defeat and they are three ahead of sixth place Hearts, who failed again to win at Tynecastle, sharing two goals with Hamilton and having a player, the manager and his assistant all sent off. Not going to dwell on that too much because we'll be talking about Hearts next week. The D followed up their excellent win against Rangers a week ago with a 2-0 victory uh, over Ross County at Dingwall and St John St Johnston suffered a perhaps not so surprising reverse at the hands of the improving Steve Clark inspired Kilmarnock. <laughs> The main talking point surrounding the Rangers-Aberdeen doubleheader last week was the huge assumption that Derek McInnes was heading to Ibrox as Rangers manager shortly after the games were completed. The fact that it had been reported for weeks as something that would inevitably happen posed some questions from my point of view. Of course, it was all speculation because any confirmation of such a, a move would unavoidably lead to charges of tapping up being made. Heavy hints, though, were in place in the press 
the hints were that off the record briefings had made it clear what was happening. And for me, there are several scenarios. One, it was about a gamesmanship in Rangers Park to unsettle Aberdeen. Famously, clubs tend to leak to the press that they are after the star player of an opponent just before a big game. I don't think you can blame Rangers for using their friends in the press to leverage an advantage in that way, but surely the way for Aberdeen to nullify that would be simply to say, unequivocally, that this isn't true and that the manager is staying where he is in the short term. Aberdeen didn't do that. The second possibility is that there was in fact a tacit agreement between Rangers and McInnes that he would make the move. Given the trashing of the integrity of football over the last couple of decades, it seems to me that the honourable course of action in that situation for Rangers and McInnes would have been to make the move happen before the double header, before the two clubs met. In that way, the obvious conflict of interest for McInnes could be avoided because the only way that he can emerge from that scenario without question marks hanging over him is if he wins both games. And of course, that didn't happen. The third scenario is that there was, yep, still a, a tacit agreement between Rangers and McInnes that he would move, but that the funds were the funds were not yet in place to compensate Aberdeen for the loss of the manager. In that situation, McInnes needs to do the honourable thing, resign, and await the funds being made available before he takes up the post. Aberdeen would also, in that situation, have have knowledge of what was happening, and you would think they'd have a duty to take McInnes out of the firing line as well. If McInnes actually does go to Ibrooks, it will not look good at all that they waited until the double-header header was over before making the move. Now, I'm not suggesting that McInnes is anything other than professional and honest, but those two results are a great outcome for the next Rangers manager. And if that guy happens to be McInnes, the optics are not good at all. Perception is everything, and you have to wonder why McInnes would allow those questions to be raised when it was completely avoidable. It's like deja vu all over again in sport and integrity, no matter what happens. Whether or not McInnes goes to Rangers, the situation has been handled at best ineptly, and at worst, well, you decide. On Friday night, the Inverness Caledonian Thistle bus was travelling south to a Dumfries Hotel ahead of their game on Saturday against Queen of the South. Long route on the infamous A9, the bus was stuck for six hours in a traffic jam following a road traffic accident. The players had run out of water whilst they were waiting and they were subject to levels of stress and boredom that comes to us all in those kind of situations. Compounding matters, they were then forced to twiddle their thumbs a bit longer uh, when they had to make an unscheduled stopover in Perth because the driver had to take a break, which is a statutory requirement for drivers of public service vehicles. The reason, of course, he had to take the break was because uh, he had spent so much time in the traffic jam, which had gone down in his logbook as driving. The squad eventually arrived exhausted in Dumfries just after 3 o'clock in the morning of the match, 3am that is. But despite their request to have the game postponed, the SPFL secretary Ian Blair betraying the same kind of empathy you would expect from someone who never saw, never mind played in a game of football, insisted that the match would go ahead. As it turned out, ICT got a battle in 1-1 draw and Ian Blair has got our Them's the Rules Award. Rules which you may remember they dispense with whenever it suits them, once again, shaming the authorities.
George Galloway is well known to us all uh, as the MP for the Glasgow Hillhead constituency, as the leader of the Respect Party. And for his dalliance with reality TV, George is now host of a hugely successful talk radio show entitled The Mother of All Talk Shows, as well as an equally hugely successful podcast rerun of the said show. George is also a football fan and we thought we'd ask him about his views in governance in the game, the effect of Murdoch's TV cash, the duty of care owed by football to its players and the effects on Brexit on the Scottish game. George, thanks for joining us here at TWM and a very warm welcome to the Scottish Football Monitor. Would you consider yourself a big football fan? Well, I've been uh, I've been watching football for uh, well over 50 years. Uh, I'm 63 and I, I think I went to my first game around uh, age seven or eight, maybe something uh, as long ago as that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think I know the game pretty well. Uh, inevitably, since leaving Scotland in 1983, albeit uh, being back at weekends for 16 years when I was a Glasgow MP, uh, I suppose most of the football that I have watched Therefore, over that period has been English football, Premiership football in the last 20 years. Uh, And so, you know, I I think I'm in a reasonable position to uh, say what I think is is wrong with the game. But what's wrong with the game in England isn't quite exactly the same as what's wrong with the game in Scotland. Uh, the, the, The issues, I think, are different. George, we're pretty much the, the, of the same vintage. and I remember a teacher once saying to me that, that football was a working man's game, played at three o'clock on a Saturday when the turn of the century workers were ending their working week. He also took great pride telling us that football was the cheapest form of entertainment, it was even cheaper than the cinema. That's absolutely no longer the case, of course. It's no longer the case to go to it, but it is the case to play it, which is why it is the universal game. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, all you need is a ball. And if you're like me, and I suspect you, uh, we used to play with rolled up socks in the, in, in the lobby in the, in the house. Uh, so you don't actually even need a ball. But outdoors, you'll need a ball, and that's it, uh, which makes it, yeah. I think, uniquely, universally accessible. Uh, and that must be preserved at all costs, and it hasn't been in the, in the professional game. But you're right about admission prices. I don't actually uh, know what the admission prices are in Scotland nowadays, because when I'm at Celtic, I'm usually a guest. Uh, um, but I do know that in England, uh, you could be spending, for you and your boy, never mind two boys, well over 100 quid. Uh, to go to a football match, which really effectively prices it out of most working people's uh, budgets, at least uh, other than on a very special occasion. So, you know, uh, maybe for a kid's birthday, you'll take them to a football match. Mm-hmm. Whereas I grew up uh, going to every football match, whether league, league cup, Texaco cup, friendlies, there wasn't any game that I couldn't go to because in Scotland at that time when I was a kid, football was completely 
accessible because it was cheap. In fact, if you were a kid, you didn't pay at all. You got lifted over the turnstile most of the time. And of course, you get football fans for life doing it that way. Exactly. You, you've locked them into a love of the game, uh, which means they're, they're customers uh, and, and purchasers of, of equipment and memorabilia and uh, all the merchandise and so on. So it's actually quite a good investment, yeah. Football clubs are forever claiming special status because of the social significance of the game in Scotland and indeed the rest of the UK. Is it fair then for us as fans to expect that the game should be regulated by an independent body and not the SFA, which is really a trade association regulating itself? Well, I have the lowest possible opinion of the SFA and I always have done. I think they're quite well named. They have done SFA for football. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and they presided over really an historic decline uh, even in my lifetime. I'm not young, but I'm not old. But in that period, uh, Scotland's uh, national game has been allowed to slip from absolutely uh, significant, uh, the, the political word would be hegemonic, dominating, all-encompassing, uh, to whatever it is today, and I don't want to uh, be too harsh, but it ain't what it was. Uh, Scottish football was once the most significant uh, national characteristic, I would say, and we were quite good at it. Uh, we had top clubs, and not just the old firm, uh, but uh, periods of significance for Dundee United, Aberdeen, uh, Hebs and Hearts, even Kilmarnock for a little time. Uh, we we had a nationally distributed treasure uh, in Scottish football, and it's all been allowed to dissipate. And now, uh, although it's easier for me because I'm a Celtic supporter and we almost always win, it's difficult for me to even uh, avert my eyes from uh, from. Uh, not just English, but other uh, national games. I watch Spanish, I watch French, I watch Italian football. Uh, it's difficult for me to muster much enthusiasm for the Scottish game now. And whereas uh, once upon a time, uh, people played, everybody played uh, in every street, every patch of uh, rough ground even, and I used to play three games a weekend, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday. Uh, and uh, now I, I go around Scotland, I see hardly anyone even playing the game, never mind uh, paying to go and watch it. That is the case very much though nowadays, isn't it, that there's more disposable income for kids compared to when we were younger. And commensurate with that, there's more choice competing for kids' time. Well, and that was always the thesis of my dear late father, uh, but it doesn't hold any water, uh, in my opinion. My, my wife is Indonesian from the Netherlands, from Holland, mm -hmm. and Holland is richer than us. The kids have more to do than our kids do, but football is in a very much healthier situation in Holland yeah. uh, than it is in Scotland. And uh, when I go to 
uh, Holland, uh, uh, Netherlands to be more precise, I, I see people playing the game uh, in significant numbers. Their national team is better than ours. Their, uh, their uh, domestic game is healthier than ours. And there are other countries that I don't go to, but uh, like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and so on, who are all small population European countries where football is in a very much healthier state than ours is. Or Irish football, for that, for that matter. How is the Irish, how is the, both the Republic and even the North of Ireland able to have successful national teams when we can't? I suppose then what you're hinting at is some kind of a structural breakdown. Now, one of the things that concerns us at the Scottish Football Monitor is the, the almost total refusal of the people at the top of the game to listen to fans, to listen to what they think about the marketing of the game, the playing of the game, the organisation of the leagues and so on and so forth. Do you think that you've seen any evidence in those countries that you mentioned where they, they have a more successful or healthier game than us? Have you seen any evidence that perhaps they do listen to fans more? Well, in Spain uh, and elsewhere in Europe, it's quite common for the fans to own clubs. And that's where I would begin if I were designing a, a new template. Uh, there's no case for, and maybe when we come to Dundee United, we'll come to that. There's no case for small-town capitalists to continue to own uh, clubs which are uh, much more significant than them uh, to the lives of the of the, the local community uh, who just by chance have been left shares in a in a football team because mm. their father and their grandfather uh, owned it and who neither display the kind of capitalist entrepreneurialism uh, that would be necessary to lift such uh, clubs into the 21st century, nor uh, the democratic accountability and participation of uh, the people who go every week and who, if they stop going, uh, there will be no football. Um, and so it seems to me that too many of our clubs, in Scotland in particular, uh, uh, fall into that uh, category. Uh, owned by by people that are not quite good enough to be top capitalists and nowhere near democratic and participatory enough to be uh, an alternative model. Uh, whereas even gigantic team, the most gigantic team of them all, uh, Real Madrid, is uh, the president is elected mm. uh, and uh, he has to. Uh, show the electorate uh, every year or whenever, however often he's uh, re-elected, I think it might be every two years, has to show uh, that the club's being run uh, properly and okay, that well, the resources are being expended wisely. Well, given the current model then, where control is held in the hands of a few people, but the social significance of the sport is much wider than that, is there a role for government in the regulation of the game? Absolutely. And, uh, and that's the only way it's going to happen. Uh, if we had uh, a Scottish government that even begun to understand football, uh, then 
that's what would happen. The government would step in uh, and force these clubs to be the uh, local resources that they ought to be and would put resource into the game because it's not nostalgia on our part. If everyone's playing football, everyone's healthier. Yeah. If everyone is focused on football, they're not focused on uh, other things that are uh, much more uh, harmful and much less um, domestically and socially important. Uh, so uh, we don't have such a government, I know, uh, and we know that in some of the legislation that they've made regulating fans' behaviour and so on over recent years. But if we did have such a government, that's what it would do. Most of our clubs have aspirations to compete beyond these shores, to compete with top European clubs as well. And from my point of view, European competitions are being rigged at the moment in ways that favour the cash-rich clubs. Will the UK leaving the European Union have an effect in the game in Europe, do you think? And what effect do you think it might have, for better or worse, in Scotland and the UK? No, I, I really don't think leaving the European Union will make a difference. We won the European Cup long before we joined the European Union. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that uh, and even Rangers came quite close uh, to uh, winning it. And uh, I think they won the European Cup Winners Cup uh, again long too, before. Yeah, yeah uh, not long before, but a year before we joined the European Union. So there's no uh, correlation, I think, in that. But one of the things which uh, Britain should do when it leaves the European Union is resurrect the game that we invented and gave to the world. And uh, uh, again, if I had any influence, I'd be saying that one of the, uh, the specifically British things that we should do is to, is to invest in, cherish more the, the uh, club structures and national sides that we've got. What about a British league then? Would you be in favour of that? I would be. I would be, in, I, I would be. And I think that as a Celtic supporter, uh, this way that we have now is death. And we're finding it every, uh, almost every, apart from the great result, uh, or not great result, but great performance against Bayern Munich. Uh, we're finding that it's just not healthy for Celtic to be playing in the environment we are currently playing in. So I, I, I want to see a British league. Maybe that's something that we could uh, see emerging uh, in the new Britain that will dawn uh, just over a year from now. George, what's your view on the responsibilities of football and the clubs to look after the health and well-being of players who end up with long-term injuries, disabilities and often life-ending conditions such as dementia? Uh, well, I, I was just talking to my 10-year-old boy about this uh, yesterday. He was saying that uh, someone, I think Chris Sutton or someone, had been raising this issue of dementia through heading the ball and so on. Uh, I mean, the balls I used to head uh, would definitely cause you cause uh, damage. You're talking about a mold master then, eh? Yes. Uh, but the, the <laughs> balls I find myself kicking now when I'm playing with my kids, it's hard to see how they could uh, inflict uh, significant uh, uh, dam brain, brain damage. But, of course, even some of the uh, biggest, greatest players 
definitely suffer. I mean, I was at Old Trafford a couple of weeks ago uh, with Lou Macari, mm-hmm. uh, who hurples a bit. Uh, and he was telling me about Gordon McQueen, uh, who's had God knows what replaced, knees, hips, maybe all of them. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, uh, players um, from a certain era, uh, not this era, I think, but from a certain era, are A, not just suffering the after effects of a life of playing football, but uh, are not being looked after by the people uh, for whom they used to work. Uh, Nobby Styles is living uh, with dementia yeah. uh, in uh, poverty. It's unbelievable. In poverty in, uh, in outer Manchester now. And uh, it's truly shameful. Tommy Gemmell, somebody had to step in and pay for Tommy Gemmell's funeral. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's really extraordinary and, and shameful. I'm not sure that their employers uh, in this era would necessarily look after them uh, any better. It's just that they make more money uh, mm. from the game, certainly in the English game, uh, that they, they won't have to you know, worry about that uh, in the way that I mean, uh, people like Lou uh, and uh, Arthur Alberston, another Scottish uh, Manchester United fan, they're now having to run around as, you know, ambassadors, they call them, uh, in order to earn 500 quid, uh, which makes a big difference to their their lifestyle. And it's amazing. I mean, Lou McCarry was 12 years at Old Trafford and a giant. Uh, there and he had been a giant for Celtic uh, before that mm. and played in the international team and so on and yet he's got to run around doing his uh, doing his um, ambassador for, for, for 500 quid it's just not right George I'd love to say something positive but uh, as a lucky man I'm, I'm sure that the, the next thing I'm going to ask you about is probably not going to fill you with joy but what goes through your, your head when you see them united in the, the state that they're in at the moment? I can hardly believe it. Uh, and, uh, and because I've been away, I'm not even really sure how it happened. But it seems to me, uh, um, it, it, it exemplifies the point I was making earlier about small town, small business owners owning a club uh, which is of far greater significance than them and not being up to the job. How did Dundee United go from their great European runs and their uh, victories uh, uh, in Scottish football, champions, cup winners, and so on, having some of the finest players around, how did they go to... I mean, I, I confess to you, I hadn't even been entirely aware they'd been relegated. Uh, and now... Yeah. They're they're at the bottom of the of the second division, uh, or whatever it's called, uh, and uh, that's a shocking state of affairs, I must say. A lot of people would point to the the fact that in the so-called golden era of Scottish football, when Celtic Rangers, Dundee, Dundee United, Aberdeen, Hibs and Hearts all advanced to the latter stages of European competition. We had gate sharing in place. Nowadays, of course, I think since the mid-80s, we, we, we haven't had any such thing, and the home team gets to keep all of the, the gate cash. Do you have any views on that? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know the maths, and therefore what the uh, difference has been. 
but uh, uh, what I can tell you is that in 1963-64, because my father had the policy of taking us to uh, uh, all kinds of games, not just uh, the teams that we supported. Uh, I never supported Dundee, but I saw every game in their European Cup run uh, arising out of their uh, league championship that year yeah. uh, from 8-1 against Cologne at Dens Park to uh, playing AC Milan in the, in the semi-final. Uh, and uh, there's another club that uh, went from that, from those dizzying heights, to well less than that uh, today, although to my surprise, uh, they're in a far better position than Dundee United. I don't know who was running Dundee United, but they've, they've certainly steered it onto the rocks. Lots of people would point to Scotland's proximity to England and the irony of Scottish football fans paying subscriptions to the Sky and BT platforms, which helped to maintain the differential between the Scottish and English games and compound the problem for us. Do you think that money is likely to dry up any time soon, or do you think the well has a long way to go before running dry? Oh, it's fantastically popular. The point you make I hadn't thought of. Uh, there might be an argument for saying that Scottish football should get more of a share uh, of that uh, TV money. Um, everyone complained about Murdoch's um, um, monopoly on uh, televised football, uh, but what that's meant is that I now have to pay Murdoch and BT uh, in order to see the games I used to be able to see only on Sky. Um, yeah. But no, I, I mean, it, football is phenomenally popular in England. Uh, and uh, Sky and BT are drawing uh, big audiences and doing a great job. Uh, I mean, it's one of the great mysteries to me that people still turn up in their scores of thousands for games uh, that they could watch in the comfort of their own home with replays and commentary and, uh, and slow-mo and, and all of that. Uh, and it's a testament to the uh, power of the game, which nearly makes my criticisms of Scottish football, I think, more, more powerful because it's not that football itself is losing its luster. Uh, it seems to me that football is as popular uh, today in England as, as it ever was, but it doesn't seem to be the case in Scotland. George Galloway, thanks very much for joining us today. Very pleasure. It's been great to talk and hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Anytime. George Galloway there putting his own slant in the world of football in Scotland and beyond. My apologies to Comarnock fans, incidentally, for failing to mention their European exploits in that question. George, you were there in spirit, believe me. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more chatter, gossip and speculation. But before we go, just a wee word about our search for sponsors. Our telephone balance unit, which allowed us to make quality recordings of telephone interviews, broke down beyond repair over the summer. We've been trying to raise the cash to replace it via sponsorship, but thus far we've been unsuccessful. The weekly monitor gets over 20 or to 30,000 downloads per episode, so commercial exposure therefore is real, and it's wide for this medium as well. So we're looking for a sponsor or sponsors for the show. If you're interested in helping us or know of anyone who could, please contact us on sfm at sfm.scot. Uh, or uh, at our Twitter handle, which is at the SF Monitor. 
Before we go, I'd like to thank George Galloway for his contribution and to you for being at one with TWM once again right here at SFM.Scot. I've been John Cole and from everyone here at the Scottish Football Monitor, have a great week. Bye for now.